You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Hi again. Thank you for being here this morning. I'd like for you to look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin this chapter. Really picks up a refrain from where we left off last week of, of Jesus just being challenged more and more. And uh, beginning here in Luke chapter 6, we're going to see one scene in which he's challenged with regards to the Sabbath use. Uh, Not next week, because we're going to have a guest preacher next week. Rob Rayburn will be here. But the week after, we're going to look at the second challenge uh, with regard to uh, how Jesus views the Sabbath. And so I want to begin this morning by uh, talking a little bit about that word Sabbath and, and what it means. But before we do that, the Sabbath is, uh, can be understood as a day on, uh, on the calendar. Uh, I'd like for our little theologians to, ju- to draw a very detailed calendar. The Sabbath in the Old Testament was Saturday. The Lord's Day is Sunday. The Sabbath is the last day of the week. And in the New Testament church, because of the resurrection of Jesus, the church worshiped on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So what I want from our little theologians is for you to be thinking about that and and work on a calendar. Draw a calendar for me and mark the Sabbath days and mark the Lord's Day. Sabbath is the last day of the week, Saturday. And then Lord's Day is the first day of the week, which is Sunday. The passage again is Luke chapter 6, just the first five verses. Let's pray together and then we'll read those verses. Our Father, thank you for your word. Help us to love your word the way Jesus loves your word. We see in this passage his, his great adoration for uh, the Holy Spirit's preserving of the book of the Bible. All the way from Moses to the writing ministry of Malachi in post-exile period, uh, Jesus goes back to those words, cherishes them, loves them, knows that you are speaking to him even through word. And so, Father, would, would we love your word the way Jesus loves your word? Would you impart that knowledge, that affection uh, by uh, or Holy Spirit, would you impart that? And that as you impart that, impart that, we would see that love for the Word over the course of the week as we look for opportunities daily to look at the Word and love the Word the way Jesus loves the Word. Thank you, God, for speaking to us in your Word. In the name of our Savior, amen. Luke chapter 6, 1 through, uh, 1 through 5. Luke 6, 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of our Lord. Well, there's a couple of challenges that Jesus is going to have to endure with regards to the Sabbath. Here's the first one. And uh, as these Pharisees come to him, it's almost as if they sneak up out of tall grasses. Isn't that funny? Did you notice that in the scene? This is how my mind works. I asked, where were they? 
there, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and the Pharisees just show up. We don't have an answer for that, but the Pharisees are certainly present that they might challenge Jesus. The next challenge to Jesus is actually a little bit easier setting to understand because it's Jesus going to them in the synagogue. But here, the Pharisees come to Jesus that they might challenge him. That's obviously their motive. And what we need to ask ourselves is what exactly is the Sabbath? If you search the Old Testament, you find one noun for the word Sabbath, and you find one verb. So you can go to Genesis 2-3, Genesis 2-4, and you find that God rested. And that word for rest sounds an awful lot like the word for Sabbath, the, the noun. And scholars uh, debate whether the verb came first and then the noun, or the noun came first and then the verb. And it's, it's hard to tell. But that verb, to rest, it shows up over almost 70 times, 67, 68 times in the Old Testament. It's a common verb, to rest, to cease, to stop doing something. But what Jesus is talking about here is not the verb, this general action, but rather the noun. And if you're looking at an ESV, there's just two, ver there's two editions of the ESV. I'm, I'm looking at the older one, but surely both editions of the ESV are going to have the word Sabbath capitalized. Capitalized. It's, it's a noun that is being used here, the Sabbath. And we, we might ask, you take a verb that means to rest, then you turn it into a noun, uh, which is an odd thing. But how would it actually become um, a significant word, significant enough to actually be capitalized? Well, our, our, Lord, our Lord does this. It's God who actually makes this word significant, sacred consecrates this noun, Sabbath. And we find this the second time in the Old Testament. We find this in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, where, where God gives the name to that day of rest. He calls it the Sabbath day, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well. And, and God is taking what is a common word, and he's making it into a consecrated word, a significant word. And so from then on, Exodus 20, this word Sabbath is not simply a noun, it is a consecrated noun. God has made it significant. However, it's not the first time in Holy Scripture that we find the word Sabbath consecrated like this. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are where the Ten Commandments are, and we, we see them in the Fourth Commandment, this, this word Sabbath being consecrated. But the first time it actually shows up in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 16, when God is giving instructions to the people with regards to using the manna. And he says to them that the day before the Sabbath, they're to gather two portions so that when the Sabbath comes, they're not actually having to work to gather on the Sabbath. So you gain two portions on Friday so that on the Sabbath, you don't have to go gather manna. And what's interesting is Moses, who wrote the first five books of our Old Testament, when Moses writes this in Exodus chapter 16, it is before the law at Sinai. That doesn't come until Exodus 20. And you wonder, why is it in Exodus 16, when God speaks to the people, he says, he doesn't simply say, look, on Friday, gather twice as much the next day, you're not, don't do anything. 
He doesn't. He says that next day is the Sabbath day. Gather twice as much on Friday so that the Sabbath would be kept special. And yet, that's Exodus 16, four chapters prior to God meeting with the people and giving them the Ten Commandments. Why do you think that is? I, I think that's, that's odd. You know, Puritans would look at, Puritans studied Adam. I mean, you would, you would read, if you read Puritan literature, you would think that the whole Bible was about Adam. And I guess in a way it is. Uh, Jesus is the second Adam who restores the rebellion of the first Adam, bringing us into a reconciled relationship with God. But the Puritans studied and parsed the minutia of Adam's life. And what they said is they said that Adam knew about the Sabbath. He knew about the Sabbath. In fact, most Puritans were in agreement that Adam actually rebelled against God on the Sabbath day. It was burned into his cortex. He knew that this was a special day. Yes, it was wicked to rebel against God, but the Puritans said he rebelled against God when God was resting. And that Hebrew word for rest in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 refers to God delighting in what he has done. He's created. He's satisfied with it. And the rest isn't just a ceasing, the rest is a delight in what he's done. And the Puritan said, the Bible is unclear, but the Puritan said, it's on that day that Adam rebelled. That's the day. And so it wasn't that the Hebrew people needed to wait until Exodus chapter 20 for them to know that the Sabbath day was a consecrated day, a significant day. No, Adam knew this, and it was the practice of Adam and Eve and the generations after them that the Sabbath was a significant day. It was a consecrated day. And we might ask, where's the biblical evidence that Adam and Eve would have that it was a consecrated day? And we might not be able to find that. But the Sabbath seems to have been consecrated even prior to the delivery of the law at Mount Sinai. I think it's just something interesting to notice, but let me summarize by saying this. Uh, The Sabbath is a noun, but it's a proper noun. It's consecrated. It is made significant. But the passage that we're looking at this morning is, to be sure, related to the Sabbath. But I think what this passage is telling us is that Jesus has an authority to work. The Sabbath is a day of rest. But Jesus has an authority to work, and he's working for our salvation. I think that's what this passage tells us, that Jesus has authority to work for our salvation. Let's dive into the passage, looking at the first two verses. This is where the challenge is, isn't it? This is uh, where the Pharisees come and they tell Jesus that what he's doing is not lawful. That's in verse 2. It's not lawful. What's remarkable is that all the Pharisees are interested in is that which you should not do on the Sabbath. The Pharisees offer nothing positive about the Sabbath and it being consecrated before God for a purpose. Everything from the perspective of the Pharisees has to do about what not, has to do with not what not to do. And in fact, in the mission of the, the collection of the, the oral tradition of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which actually hasn't been written at this time, but there's an oral tradition, and the oral tradition has 39 principal works that are forbidden on the Sabbath, 39 works divided into six subcategories. So clearly there's been a great deal of thinking and discussion around what ought not to be done on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees know this even though it will be after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 before the oral laws actually written together in a volume that you could go and buy today, they still know these oral traditions. 
and there's 39 works that you can't do. And these disciples, they hit a lot of them. It's interesting when Luke tells what the disciples are doing, look at all the verbs that he uses. They plucked, they ate, and they're rubbing the the kernels in their hand. Very, well, that's a pun, but earthy verbs. But just keep in mind, there's a lot of them. Luke wants Theophilus, whom he's writing to, and Luke wants us to see that there was a lot of activity that the disciples were doing. They were plucking, they were eating, they were rubbing them in their hands. And according to those 39 things, what not to do on the Sabbath, the disciples broke four of them right there. Right there, there's four of them that they have broken. They are reaping, they are threshing, they are winnowing, and they are preparing food. What should you not do on the Sabbath? Apparently, you ask Jesus' disciples. They're masters at what not to do on the Sabbath. They're able to do four right here, and all they're doing is walking. Well, this Torah has described to the disciples through the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the the Mishnah, the the, uh, oral tradition of the Torah, has described to the disciples what exactly ought not to happen. And even as the Pharisees are against the disciples, they're really against Jesus, aren't they? They're really against Jesus. There aren't any grammatical cues in the text, but it seems as though there's there's a feel in which the Pharisees are looking at the disciples, but they're speaking to Jesus. They're noticing what the disciples do, but they're treating Jesus as somehow representative of them. Jesus is the teacher of these disciples, and this teacher clearly is not a qualified teacher because look what his disciples are doing. And so, It looks like it's a challenge to the disciples, but I want you to look at this verse and see that that really it's a challenge to Jesus. Jesus is allowing this to happen. Now, Jesus' response is in verses 3 and 4. Remember, 1 and 2, it's it's a challenge about what not to do on the Sabbath, and here these disciples are doing it. But look what Jesus does in verse 3. Jesus actually goes to God's Word, and what He says is He says not what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath, but what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. And He uses an example, King David, in 1 Samuel 21. David, at this point in his life, has actually been anointed. Jesus turns to Scripture. Let me just offer three real quick applications for all of us. Note that Jesus actually does go to Scripture. How astounding that is. We believe that Jesus is divine. That He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Paul is going to write later in Colossians 1 that Jesus was present with God at creation. That all things were created through Him and for Him. And yet He goes to Scripture. One would think that if anyone had a shortcut to avoid the the problem of going into Scripture, the hassle of that, it would be Jesus. But Jesus actually goes into Scripture, and we've seen this from Him before. The The first sermon that Luke shares with us is a sermon in which Jesus preaches from the prophets, Isaiah 61. And in that same sermon, Jesus was not afraid to also preach from historical books. He brings up the life and ministry of Elijah and life and ministry of Elisha. Jesus is going to God's Word. And Jesus, when He is being tempted by Satan, where does He go? He goes to the Torah. He goes to Deuteronomy. Our Savior goes to God's Word. Are we any better than Him? 
that we have special privileges in which we don't have to go to God's Word, to love Holy Scripture. So please note that Jesus goes to Scripture. That's the first thing. So should we. So should we. The second thing to notice about this, again, still in verse 3, considering that Jesus goes to Scripture, it's not simply that He does go to Scripture, but that He takes Scripture seriously, that He reads it closely, that as He looks in 1 Samuel 21, He knows what's going on in the life of David. He doesn't know what's going on in the life of David because He uh, walks with David, has fellowship with David. That's anachronistic. David is, is dead, buried. But Jesus has studied the life of David, and as he goes into Scripture, he studies these occasions in David's life. Uh, Jesus takes David seriously. David isn't just a symbol. David isn't a figment of an author's imagination. David is not a literary device. David is a historic figure. And Jesus studies the details of David's life. He understands the chronology of his life. He understands what he does. He understands the context of what David is doing. He understands the words of David. He actually studies Scripture, details and all. This, that's the second thing to notice. Not only the fact that he goes to Scripture, but that he actually takes it seriously and studies its details carefully. And the, and the third thing is simply this, is that Jesus expects Scripture to be challenging. He actually expects Scripture to be challenging. What's the proof of that? Have you not read, in verse 3, do you see? Have you not read? The construction of that question tells us that Jesus knows the answer. He knows they've read. And the people whom He's speaking to, the Pharisees, they know that He knows that they've read. It's the, it's the way the grammar works when Jesus asks this question. Have you not read? He's essentially saying, surely you have read. I think some translations will use the word surely. That's very appropriate. Jesus is saying, surely you've read. You've read this. You know this very well. In many ways, that question is actually a compliment. You've read this. I know you've read this. I know you've read this diligently even. Surely have you not read? And they have. However, they've missed the point. They've missed the point. And they need someone to provide clearer exegesis of the passage, to, ex uh, to uh, ex explain the passage, to exposit the passage, to preach the passage. They need that because Jesus knows that it's challenging. And they need help understanding. Verse 3, he's saying, I know you've read it but you've still missed the point. I know you've read it, but you've still missed the point. You know, Jesus is standing with his disciples. He knows what that's like to read Scripture and miss the point. Jesus in his glorified body in Luke chapter 24 is going to spend time with these same disciples, and they will have still missed the point. And Jesus has to help them uh, explicate Scripture, unfold Scripture for them. Jesus knows that Scripture is challenging. And He's given you, he's given you a means by which you can understand Scripture. He has given you the teaching ministry of the life of the church, for sure. But He's given you brothers and sisters that also read and study Scripture. And then you yourself need to read and study Scripture so that you can be a helpful brother or sister to your brothers and sisters. There needs to be a community of people looking into God's, God's Word, submitting to it, trusting it, pulling out its details, examining it. But we can say right now and right now, right, right here, that when Jesus says in verse 3, have you not read, we know that they've missed the point, 
But if you want a shortcut to what the point is, the point is Jesus. Jesus must be at the center of Scripture for it to be understood correctly. Jesus is the authoritative teacher of Scripture. He understands Scripture. He teaches Scripture. He is the center of Scripture. And we're getting a hint of that right here. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you have read, but you don't understand. And then Jesus says, let me explain it to you. Let me explain it to you. I know that reading the Old Testament can be very challenging. You, you sit down and you read it and, it's, and you just wonder, I, I, just, I don't know where I am. I don't know what the point of this is. And then you flip to the right more and you come to the New Testament and it, and it feels more comfortable. I, I, I know that feeling. But you need to push back that feeling. You need to love the Old Testament. And the way to love the Old Testament is to see your Lord and Savior in the Old Testament. To see that Jesus is a fulfillment of that Old Testament. To see in the life of David something about Jesus. That's what we need to talk about now. But you need to cultivate that. You need to pray that God would give you a love for the Old Testament. You need to pray that God would give you clearer eyes to see the cross of your Savior in the Psalms. To see the, the life and ministry of your Savior in, in the historical works to see the preparation of the people for the reception of the Savior in the giving of the law in um, uh, uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You need to expect that. Jesus knows it's challenging. And Jesus comes as our faithful prophet to not only explain the Word to us, but also to picture the Word with His body because it's all about Him. So what then is it about the story of David that Jesus teaches the, the Pharisees about? Well, David does something in this passage, 1 Samuel 21, and, and it would seem as though David violates the law at the tabernacle somehow. We're not told in that passage that it takes place on the Sabbath. Did you, did you hear that at all in 1 Samuel 21? We're not told that it actually takes place on the Sabbath. There's some, you know, some tiny indicators that maybe it took place on the Sabbath. And Jesus is kind of stepping back a little bit and he's saying, look, irregardless of whether or not this takes place on the Sabbath, David ate food that should have been reserved for priests. That's what David did. There was some kind of, at least on the surface, an apparent violation of the law. And David uh, is exemplifying a point that Jesus wants to draw out. You see, David has been anointed already by Samuel. He's been anointed as king. And Saul, in this passage, is actually hunting him down. He's already attempted to murder him more than once. And David has then been forced to go into hiding, even leaving his, his wife. There is a hint that he's a married man in this passage. I hope you caught that. He's the son-in-law of Saul, and Saul wants him dead. And so David is in hiding. He is without his wife. He is alone until he meets people here at the tabernacle. Apparently, he's, he uh, made plans to meet his, uh, uh, meet his men at the tabernacle. And it may be also that David's afraid that he is emotionally tattered. And he goes to the tabernacle, and we know that he is hungry, and we're drawing out uh, from that that he, the men that are with him are also hungry. And the priest is very, very clear with David. He says, look, there's bread here, but it's common bread. It's not sacred bread. It's, it's or I'm sorry, it's sacred bread, not common bread. 
It's almost as if the priest would love to give him bread, but he wished he had a stack of common bread, but he doesn't. All he has is sacred bread. And it's bread that would stay there over the course of the week. And at the end of that week, it would be, re be replaced with more bread. But for now, just notice that it is a consecrated bread. It's special bread that has been made holy uh, by God for sacred use. Uh, that's what is meant by the bread of the presence. It was a bread that was meant to uh, be there untouched for a week, and then at the end of that week it would go to the Levites. And yet David actually eats this, and he's not a Levite. He eats it, and he's not a Levite. Okay, so that's just a broad survey of 1 Samuel 21 and 22, where Jesus goes in order to respond to this challenge from the Pharisees. I want to say two things quickly. On the surface, Jesus is simply saying to the Pharisees, he's saying this, he's saying, look, if you guys are right, then David's wrong. All right, if you're right, then David is wrong. If you're right and, it's, and something untoward to God is happening right now, then you have to also look at David and apply this, the same challenge to him. If you're right, not only am I wrong, but David's wrong too. It's, it's a bit of a challenge to the Pharisees. Do you want to go down that path? Are you calling both me and David wrong? Because what Jesus knows is he knows that Holy Scripture never accuses David. It's almost as if... Uh, uh, Jesus looks and he understands that as this is written, likely by Samuel, that David is not actually chastised by Holy Scripture. And he's also not chastised by the priest. Scripture never accuses David, and the priest Ahimelech never accuses David. It would seem as though the only ones who accuse David are the Pharisees that are accusing Jesus. And you see, this is what Jesus does. He turns the tables on the Pharisees, and he places his life as on the same authority as Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is never changing. And Jesus says, I have that same authority. And it's the Pharisees then who are opposed to not only Jesus, but also David and to Holy Scripture and to the priesthood of, of uh, Ahimelech. Jesus shows that the Pharisees are opposed to all four, to Jesus and to David and to Holy Scripture and to the priesthood. And the Pharisees then end up being the lawbreakers for replacing right worship with something else. This is all right worship. From the perspective of the priest and Scripture and David and Jesus, this is correct worship. So what then, Pharisees, are you angry about? That's just on the surface. And you might stop there and you might say, uh, you know, Jesus tied up the Pharisees in a logical conundrum. And they can't go any further than that. But if you dig a little bit deeper, I think what Jesus is doing is he's pulling out some of the life and ministry of David and applying it to himself. He's actually doing something that Pharisees would find to be very, very offensive. Because on the surface, he's just saying to the Pharisees that if you're against me, you're against David, Scripture, and the priesthood. But you go a little, a little bit deeper, and we find out that in this passage, holiness is talked about a lot. In 1 Samuel 21 and 22, holiness is talked about a lot. The passage re repeats that theme of holiness. Not only is the bread holy, but David defends his holiness and the priest agrees that David is holy. And so David, acting as a, a holy agent, 
An agent before God that has the satisfaction of God takes that holy bread that was consecrated by God. Holiness is all over this passage. And if David is holy, Jesus is saying, I'm holy as well. Do you see why it's helpful to exegete Scripture, to meditate on it, to pray over it, to study it? There's something that Jesus is saying directly to the Pharisees. But as the Pharisees walk away, they're thinking about these things. Wait a minute. Jesus is saying that he is holy like David is holy. David is also saying that the priest in this passage, 1 Samuel 21, is very thorough. He tests David to find out if he's holy. And the Pharisee tests David and acknowledges that David is holy. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is he's saying that your job as a priest is to actually acknowledge my holiness as, as uh, Ahimelech acknowledged the holiness of David. That gets offensive. Your job, Pharisee, is to acknowledge holiness. Ahimelech acknowledged the holiness of David. You should be acknowledging my holiness. David knows this, or Jesus knows this passage very well. David is holy. I'm holy, Jesus says. Ahimelech acknowledged the holiness of David. You as a priest ought to acknowledge my holiness. And David is there, and David is doing something. He's uh, violating the Sabbath, apparently, but he is actually anointed. God has anointed this David to do his will. David is to be the king of God's people. And David, if he's working in this passage, we would have to say that his, his working is the working of bringing the people under his leadership that they might be established under his kingship. He represents them as their king. He is assuming for himself what God has given him by representing God's people, even prior to the death of Saul. And Jesus has been anointed already. Everyone knows this, that Jesus has been anointed by God, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, and he has been anointed as the Son of God with whom God's well pleased. Jesus has been anointed, and if David is working to establish that what God has already given him, so too is Jesus working to establish that which God has given him. He's representing his people as David is representing his people. And in order to pound that point home, I want to say this to you, that the, present, the, the bread of presence is called the bread of presence because people have to leave the tabernacle. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to preach just a little bit longer, and we're going to fellowship for a bit, and everyone's going to leave. You're going to go home. You're going to get up Monday. And you're going to have a Monday away from this place, away from the preaching, away from the singing of the congregation. Will you still be with Jesus when that happens? You will. But one of the ways that was signed in the time of David is with the bread of presence. And the bread of presence were actually 12 loaves. And the, pe the people would come to the tabernacle on the Sabbath and they would worship God. But when they left, they left the 12 loaves. And as they left, those 12 loaves, loaves would represent the people so that the people were always in the presence of God. They're always in the presence of God. 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes. And they go and they worship and they go home. And for them, they get up on Sunday. For you, you get up on Monday. But as they get up on Sunday, they know that they are still in God's presence because those loaves represent them there. Now, 
If those loaves represent Israel being close to God the six days that they are not physically with him, Jesus is that very presence to us. Jesus is the presence of God. And as we come to faith in Jesus as Christians, we are always in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are in Christ Jesus. We have God's presence with us always. We're told he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. It is Jesus who is that very presence. It is almost as if King David is eating up a sign, a sign that the people have the presence of God. David is eating it up. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm that sign because I'm that presence. You don't need the loaves on the table. You need me. The loaves on the table are there for me. And I replace those loaves. Do you see what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees? If David's holy, I'm holy. If the priests acknowledge David, you Pharisees must acknowledge me. If David is doing a work for the establishment of what God has already given him in his anointing, I am doing a work for the establishment of what God has already given me in my anointing. And if David is eating from a table of God's presence, and you might be offended by that, keep this in mind. I, in my body, am God's very presence. And if you're with me, you're with him always. We're just digging deeper into 1 Samuel 21, and there's so much more to be said. Would you please take God's word seriously? There's a surface offense to the Pharisees. If you're right, then King David is wrong. You're, you're accusing Holy Scripture. You're accusing the priesthood. That's just on the surface. But we see that Jesus is saying much more. That's why I think the, the theme of the passage is this, that Jesus has authority to be working Jesus has an authority to be working. And I think verse 5 summarizes everything. It's one of the most difficult scriptures uh, to uh, actually parse and understand. Verse 5, Jesus says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Even in the Greek, this is a, this is a difficult passage. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. While Jesus himself did not actually break the Sabbath, he certainly broke the Mishnah. He certainly broke the oral law of the Jews. But Jesus did not break the Sabbath. Because David did not break the Sabbath. He is using the Sabbath as it was intended. Mark uh, chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 12 draw out the same scene with that implication. That David is actually doing on the Sabbath what you should be doing on the Sabbath. We don't have time to talk about that here. But I don't believe that Jesus broke the Sabbath. But even though we don't, we don't assume that Jesus uh, broke the Sabbath... We also don't believe that the Sabbath is mandatory today in the same way that sacrifices are mandatory to us or that pilgrimages to the temple might be mandatory to us. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath, but that's not the same thing as saying the Sabbath needs to be reborn today exactly as it was in the time of David. He didn't break the Sabbath, but it doesn't mean all those Old Testament laws now just need to be reborn and we're wrong worshiping today. We missed it. We should have worshiped here yesterday. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. Because Jesus was resurrected, and his resurrection guarantees that he has the authority to govern the Sabbath. Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 16 is very clear that when the church gathers, they gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's the point of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It points to this Jesus 
who dies and is resurrected. And as the church gathers today, the church understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And the church worships on the Lord's day, but doesn't worship on the Lord's day in such a way that disregards the importance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is important, even though we worship on the Lord's day. And what we see is we see that what's valuable about the Sabbath is what the Sabbath shows us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath because, well, because the Sabbath is about Him, Hebrews 4 tells us. There has been a Sabbath rest from the dawn of creation. But Hebrews 4 says that when we become Christians, we actually enter that rest. We enter that eternal rest as we become Christians. There was a Sabbath rest on the seventh day. God created in days one through six. That Sabbath rest lasts for all eternity, but no one can enter that Sabbath rest outside of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways to understand what it means to be a Christian is that we believe in Jesus and we enter into that Sabbath rest. Why? Because Jesus has the authority to work for our salvation. He has done everything necessary, and he shows us that. And when you, when you come to him in the gospel and you say yes to that work, you actually are invited into that Sabbath rest. The, the, the point of the Sabbath in the Old Testament is that it would show us our need for Jesus, someone that can really give us the presence of God. And when Jesus says in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, I think what he's doing there is he's, he's stating not simply an ownership of the Sabbath, but he's saying that all of the tendrils of the Sabbath point, Sabbath point to him. He is the fulfillment of that Sabbath. Not that the Sabbath is unimportant, but if you don't understand how the Sabbath points to Jesus, you don't understand anything about the Sabbath at all. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has authority to work because he is the, the only begotten of God. And he does that work that we might be saved. And because he has done that work, we enter into the rest that he opens up to us. And as we enter into that rest, we have rest indeed. We have rest indeed. He has the authority to work for our salvation. And the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge that. And instead, they're going to talk about what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What is lawful to do on the Sabbath is to trust that God knows how to reconcile us to himself. God knows how to reconcile us to himself, and he does so in the work of his son. Tons more that could be said about this. Two weeks from now, we're going to look at another Sabbath passage. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Sabbath and its role for us as Christians today. Uh, for now, let's pray, and we're going to confess the Nicene Creed together. Our Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for... Uh, uh, giving us a Savior who actually uh, himself condescends to your holy word, that we might condescend to your holy word, go to it and trust it. And we thank you that Jesus did everything that was necessary for our salvation. Everything that the Old Testament points to for our salvation is done in the body of Jesus. Now, Father, would you help us to go from this place, loving your word more, and knowing that we have rest in Christ Jesus, and trusting that you will guide us as Christians to understand more and more how to, how to read your Old Testament. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.